Hello, I'm Amelia Rankert Thomas, the author of Engaged Ownership, a guide for owners of family businesses. In response to readers' requests, we've created this audiobook to share some insight and guidance I hope will prove useful to you. Let's begin. Preface This book came about because I kept hearing a half-truth about family business succession presented as a best practice. More than one family business consultant opined that it is a bad idea for control to pass to owners who aren't in the business. Lawyers recommended estate planning strategies that concentrated control in the hands of those managing the business, not only for tax mitigation, but also to reduce the risk of conflict. Bankers and wealth advisors laughed that, ha, all business-owning families are dysfunctional. Certainly, no family business, or family for that matter, is without conflict. Conflict is endemic when people with different perspectives, owners, directors, managers, family, have different needs, perspectives, and priorities. And issues of control can be some of the most vexing problems that family businesses can face. But to suggest that consolidating control of a family business in the hands of management is a good way to avoid conflict worse yet, a best practice, sells owners short. In our consulting practice, I've met and worked with too many multi-generational owner groups where owners play a productive, active, and accepted role in business decision-making to believe the half-truth so many advisors are perpetrating. The challenge is, how can owners become engaged in business decision-making in a way that sustains and builds the capital that has been created. Owners who don't work in the business can be an asset, not a liability. They bring a different but critical viewpoint. They often possess skills, talents, experience, and perspective that can help shape the vision and strategic direction of the business. They, of all participants in the family business system, are best situated to think beyond what's the best decision for the business to What's the best decision for our family and our core capital? Core capital, the unique blend of financial, human, and enterprise capital that make up the assets of a business-owning family, includes the business itself but goes far beyond it and includes the savvy in the family's lineage and the entrepreneurial knowledge and drive developed over generations. For a business-owning family, there is so much more at stake than money. When owners think broadly about how all the forms of the family's capital are invested inside and outside the business, not just the financial capital, they are more likely to deploy their capital wisely. This book is written for family business owners and the advisors who help them. It lays out a time-tested process for building engagement among all owners, managing and non-managing. My business partner and close colleague, Ken McCracken, and I, and the consultants who work with us, have used this process with families across the world over many years. We have found that engaged owners experience less conflict and bring important contributions to the business and the core capital. They have spent time together articulating a shared purpose, the answer to the question, why do we want to be owners of this business together, if at all? and laying out a common vision for the future. They have worked with board, 
management, and family to allocate responsibility for making decisions around critical issues such as capital investment, acquisitions and divestitures, dividends, strategic planning, corporate branding and relocation, and have laid out policies to provide additional guidance. For family owners who undertake the work of engagement, there is a new energy around business and capital discussions. With engaged owners at the helm, board and management alike find they have a strategic partner and a far clearer vision for the future. The process and challenges of achieving engaged ownership are illustrated throughout the book by the story of the Owen family, second and third generation owners of Owen Products Limited, a terracotta manufacturing company. The four Owen children, Mike, Martha, Amanda, and Christopher, find themselves as third-generation owners following the unexpected death of their father, Charlie. The Owens are entirely fictitious, but their story is pieced together from those of many family businesses, and it demonstrates how managing and non-managing owners can come together to make decisions about the future of the business and the core capital. Engaged ownership offers family business owners a path to engagement with management, board, and family on the critical questions facing the business and the core capital. It also offers an alternative paradigm to more traditional models of family business governance. The process of engagement described here has enabled many family businesses to navigate ownership transitions over generations and to assess and deploy their core capital more thoughtfully. To family business owners reading this book, I hope that the ideas presented here will resonate with you and help you to articulate your vision and to invest every form of your core capital toward its highest and best use. July 29th, 2015. Part 1. Engaged Ownership and Introduction. Owen Family, January 3rd, 2010. Early in the morning, Charlie Owen went for a run. There was a board meeting coming up, and he suspected his two outside directors might ask him about succession planning. He had just signed estate planning documents two weeks ago at the insistence of his wife, Allie, his daughter, Amanda, and his accountant. The estate plan wasn't exactly what he wanted, but at least it got everyone off his back. Allie had urged him to consider putting his 75% of the Owen Products shares in trust, just as his Uncle Fred had done, particularly since three of their four children had married, and there would be less risk of the shares passing out of the family in the event of a divorce if the shares were held in trust. Charlie usually followed his wife's advice, particularly when it came to legal matters, but he really couldn't imagine how he could have dealt with a trustee on top of everything else had his own father put the shares in trust, so he opted for the shares to pass to his children at his death instead. As for the taxes that would be due when he died and the shares passed, they would be paid for by insurance. Thank goodness he didn't smoke and had the heart of an ox from all the marathon training. Allie would receive their house and Charlie's savings and investment accounts. Son Mike could run the company, drawing on his siblings for advice and support. Daughter Martha's husband, Ryan Jones, the head of operations for Owen Products West, could help. As he started up the long hill behind the football stadium, Charlie made himself a mental reminder to begin talking with Mike next week. 
Allie had suggested that Charlie call a family meeting to explain his plans. But was it really a good idea to talk about all this? What if the kids, or worse, their spouses, didn't agree with his plans? Charlie was nearly to the top of the hill, still in full stride, when the pain hit. A motorist coming up the hill behind him saw him stumble, then collapse. She pulled over and ran to help, calling the emergency number on her mobile phone. July 10th, 2010. Meet the Owen family. Charlie Owen took over the reins of Owen Products Limited in 1975 from his father, John Owen, who founded the company in 1948. Like his father, Charlie was a driven businessman, and as a result of his efforts over four decades, Owen Products is now a leading manufacturer of clay pots for the domestic greenhouse industry. The company has two manufacturing facilities, Owen Products East and Owen Products West. Each serves a distinct market due to the very different climates on either side of the country. Owen Products East primarily serves greenhouses in the east where it is wet and cool. Eastern greenhouses want pots that can withstand freeze-thaw conditions so that they can be used outside. Owen Products West primarily serves greenhouses in the West where it is hot and dry. Western greenhouses want pots that can withstand extreme heat and will absorb and retain water, thus reducing the amount of watering that must be done to keep the plants healthy. Owen Products has developed distinct technologies in each of its manufacturing facilities to meet the needs of greenhouses on both sides of the country. The company makes pots in thousands of different shapes and sizes, including custom sizes for top customers. It also prides itself on quick and accurate deliveries to its biggest greenhouse customers and has made a substantial investment in supply chain and logistics management technology. As a result, Owen Products clay pots command a higher price in the marketplace than their competition. Charlie Owen died six months ago, leaving his shares, representing 75% of the outstanding shares of Owen Products Limited, to his four children. Mike Owen, born in 1971, now president, formerly served as vice president of sales for Owen Products East. Martha Owen Jones, born in 1972 and a homemaker, is married to Ryan Jones, VP of Operations for Owen Products West. Amanda Owen Cooper, born in 1975, is an attorney who practices with a corporate law firm in the West. And Christopher Owen, born in 1976, is an associate professor of applied mathematics at Eastern University. The remaining 25% of the shares are held in a trust that was created by Charlie's uncle Fred for the benefit of his son Alfred, who suffers from severe cerebral palsy. Fred was Owen Products' CFO for more than 40 years. Fred died in 2008 and named Charlie as trustee of the trust for Alfred. Charlie, in turn, named his daughter Amanda as successor trustee. Dividends from the shares are expected to provide much of the funding for Alfred's ongoing care. Charlie's death was unexpected. A self-described health food nut and marathon runner, he collapsed one day during a training session and never regained consciousness. Doctors told his wife, Allison, that he had suffered from an undetected aneurysm. The board of Owen Products Limited, Mike, Allison, the company's outside general counsel, 
the owner of a prominent eastern greenhouse and a local professor of botany, named Mike as president and CEO. The Owen kids are proud to be the third generation of shareholders of Owen Products, and they are excited about the opportunities they see in the clay pot industry. As Charlie told them from the time they were small, people will always want potted plants, and terracotta is the best possible pot for growing them. But the Owen children are finding that there is no roadmap for the journey they have embarked on. While they have always enjoyed close relationships, they find themselves disagreeing on seemingly simple decisions. The business isn't running smoothly, customer complaints are increasing, cash flow is slowing, and major customers have suggested they may turn to other suppliers. The board, which previously served primarily as a sounding board for Charlie, isn't accustomed to strategic planning, and they have proven to be little help as Mike tries to navigate his new role. Their advisors are telling Mike that he should buy out his siblings. Amanda, Martha, and Christopher are beginning to question Mike's motives. A major competitor called to ask whether they would consider selling the business now that Charlie is gone. Mike, offended, slammed down the phone. When Mike joked about the call at a family gathering, Amanda was shocked and scolded him for not bringing the offer to the board and shareholders. Martha and her husband, Ryan, want to bring their son, Jameson, into the company when he graduates from university. Amanda, whose children are much younger, is worried about equal opportunities. Christopher called Mike recently to ask when the next dividend would be paid and whether he could expect an increase next year. Mike has been avoiding Christopher since then. The Owen children, as the controlling owners of Owen Products Limited, feel as though they are alone in uncharted territory. But the Owen children are not alone. In fact, the situation they face is increasingly common. What is happening here? What can they do about it? How can they come together to lead Owen products forward? And why does so much of the advice they are receiving seem off base? A note about the Owens and Owen Products Limited. Readers whose involvement in family business revolves around very different sorts of companies, larger, more international, more technology or service oriented, may wonder whether the Owens story in this book will be relevant to them. In family business, there are certain patterns that recur over and over, regardless of setting. This book focuses on one of those patterns. A group of related individuals inherit shares of a family business that previously was controlled and managed by a single person, and they struggle to find their place within the business system. This book focuses on a relatively small family in a relatively old and slow-to-change industry to illustrate those patterns so as to minimize the business-oriented distractions that might otherwise arise in the telling. This is not a story about dysfunction. The Owen children are intelligent, educated, well-adjusted, and capable adults with good jobs, adequate financial resources outside the business, and a strong commitment to family and their family business. Certainly, they share the challenges that most families face, raising children, dealing with an aging mother who now finds herself widowed, and managing complex professions, growing financial obligations, and busy family lives. But in the main, the Owens are as well prepared to be owners of a business as anyone. The Owens are entirely fictitious, but they are similar to many business-owning families. 
the challenges they face in becoming engaged owners of Owen Products Limited do not arise from their interpersonal relationships as family members, but rather from their new relationship to the company and the company's core capital. They will not be able to resolve those conflicts simply by relating better to each other, although good communication skills will certainly stand them in good stead. Rather, dealing with those conflicts will require that the Owens get organized in an entirely new way by developing structures and policies that will enable them to look at capital and strategy at the highest level and support them in developing a new decision-making structure and allocation of power among the owners, board, and management. Chapter 1, More at Stake Than Money, Refocusing the Succession Planning Discussion. News stories about family business disputes are eternally popular because they have all the elements of epic tragedy, love, greed, betrayal, loss. Readers know how the plot will turn out. Owners can't agree on the future of the business. They take their disagreement to court. A lengthy and public battle ensues. A fortune is spent on the battle, the business is lost, and the family is torn apart. Often, Blame for this tragic ending is laid squarely on the family owners. They only wanted big dividends. They fought each other for control. They couldn't agree on whether to sell the business. They failed to change course before disaster struck. Certainly, there are plenty of examples of such behavior. So often are owners cast in the role of villain that advisors to family businesses regularly suggest that ownership and control should be concentrated in the hands of a single individual to avoid conflict that could arise when family members with different viewpoints, needs, and agendas share ownership of a business. This book takes a different perspective on family business ownership. How can family owners be the core strength of the business and not the villain's? How can owners be the source of a unified and thoughtful vision for the future? How can they be engaged in an ongoing, productive conversation with family, board, and management, strengthening the long-term value of the business, the family's core capital, and the owner's stake in it? To see family business ownership in this new light, we need to think differently about the roles and responsibilities of family owners, their shared purpose, and their collective vision for the future. We need to refocus the discussion around business succession planning from who's going to run the company to what is the best use of our core capital. By definition, owners of a business own the equity capital, the value that would remain if the business and its assets were sold and all its debts and other obligations paid in full. That definition underlies most economic and business theory. But that definition of what exactly is owned while useful for accounting and financial purposes, is uncomfortably limiting when the business in question has been owned by a family over generations. If a group of family owners were to sit down together for a while and talk about what exactly they own, they might come up with a longer list, one that included many different kinds of capital. Financial capital, such as money and equivalents, the income and distributions from the business, the financial value of physical assets such as equipment, raw materials, inventories, and real estate. 
human and social capital, such as their individual and family relationships, their talents, drive, perseverance, grit, and determination, their strongly held values, and their entrepreneurial zeal, the formal and informal education they've received, and the experience and knowledge base they hold individually and as a group, the family's relationships and connections, its values, the reservoir of goodwill and their good name within the family, the business, and the wider community. Enterprise capital, such as their unique know-how, combinations of financial and human capital unique to the family and its business, which generate a return greater than what the separate elements would generate individually, and the societal value of the product or service the business provides. This is the core capital of a family and its business, a different, broader, more encompassing view of what it is that the owners of the business in fact own. Some of the core capital is related to the business activities of the business. Some is related to the unique personality, culture, and values of the family that created it. And some is a result of the synergy of family and business together. The core capital has been built over one or more generations and reflects the contributions and efforts of many. The core capital also reflects withdrawals and reductions that may have occurred due to mistakes, failed efforts, lack of attention, external events such as market changes, wars, or recessions, strategic choices, withdrawals, sales, deaths, feuds, or exits. In a legal sense, the owners own only the financial capital, but they are responsible for the human capital and the enterprise capital as well because they have the power and the responsibility to make the ultimate decisions. Keep, sell, expand, contract, invest, leverage, harvest that will have decisive impact on the future of the human capital and the enterprise capital. Every group of owners will assess and value their core capital differently, just as they will determine their financial risk-reward calculations differently. They will also reassess and revalue from time to time as owners join and leave the group and as their circumstances, environment, and perspective change. There is no absolute standard. For a privately held business, what is important is that the owners agree on what constitutes their core capital and how they will measure performance. One of the basic tenets of investing is that capital should be invested. If it just sits passively, it risks going to waste. This is true of every kind of core capital invested, not just financial capital. Focusing on financial capital alone, measuring results solely with a financial yardstick, may well result in human or enterprise capital being misused or wasted. If the human capital includes excellent community relationships, then moving the business to maximize financial profits may destroy the relationship with the community. If the enterprise capital includes superb customer service, then automating those processes could hurt morale and performance. All forms of capital come together to drive results, and focusing on non-financial core capital can help owners to recognize the full extent of the value their ownership represents. 
So, who is tasked with watching over the core capital of a family business? The premise of this book is that owners, not the board, not management, are ultimately responsible for overseeing the deployment of the financial, human, and enterprise capital. They alone have the interest, perspective, and responsibility to determine their shared purpose, their vision for the future of the business, and the yardsticks by which they will measure return on core capital and, ultimately, success. Owners have this responsibility precisely because they are the holders of the residual core capital. Their capital is what would remain if the business were sold or shut its doors. In the end, only they can determine what is an acceptable risk or a desirable return. Only they can decide if the potential rewards of being in a given business activity offset the risks, and if not, how the core capital should be redeployed. This book is a handbook for current and future family owners who recognize the unique value of the core capital invested in their family businesses and who wish to play a more active role in overseeing how that core capital is used, invested, and reinvested over time. It represents a paradigm for family owners, engaged ownership, and lays out how they can create more effective partnerships with family, board, and management to ensure the long-term sustainability and growth of core capital. The key to engaged ownership is clarifying the roles and relationships of owners to the other groups in the business, board, management, and family, and then organizing themselves to promote effective decision-making on the critical matters for which owners bear responsibility, and then working effectively with board, management, and family. Part two lays out the process by which a group of owners can achieve engaged ownership of their family business. First, owners consider the legacy they have inherited and the attitudes and assumptions around ownership that have been passed down along with the business. Then, by enumerating their core capital and articulating their shared purpose as owners, they develop a richer understanding of their core capital and its role in the business and the family. By defining their vision for the future, they establish the highest level objectives for board and management. But not all family owners are willing or able to become engaged owners, and Part 2 also discusses viable alternatives to engaged ownership. Part 3 provides on-the-job guidance for engaged owners. Owners don't operate in a vacuum, and Part 3 delineates the process by which engaged owners can establish an owner's council as the forum for their work as owners. Part 3 then considers the allocation of decision-making power among owners, board, and management, and the importance of building engagement with the board and with the broader family. It provides advice and guidance on setting the meeting agenda and operating forum meetings. Part 3 ends with a discussion of policies and the value of defining the boundaries of forum decision-making on key topics such as distributions and redemptions, family employment, privacy and confidentiality, and compensation. Part 4 considers the challenges for ownership decision-making when the ownership group faces three very different ownership constellations. One, 
when family owners also manage the company. Two, when the ownership groups includes trustees of shareholder trusts. And three, when the ownership group includes non-family investors who are not related to the family who founded the business. What these three ownership constellations have in common is that these owners will have very strong and distinct perspectives and objectives as a result of their other roles that may make it much more difficult for them to reach consensus around shared purpose and vision with the other owners. Part four helps engaged owners understand these constellations, consider their implications, and make decisions more effectively. Owen family, March 7th, 1948. Owen Products was founded in 1948 by John Owen. John had returned from the war in 1946. He longed to get away from battle and return to his family's small farm in the east. The war had interrupted his education, and he planned to finish his engineering degree at the local university as quickly as possible. But upon his return, he found that his father, a kiln fireman in a clay drainage pipe factory, was gravely ill, and his mother was struggling to care for John's younger sisters and brother. John put away his plans to return to university and instead got a job at the same clay pipe factory where his father had worked. Construction was booming after the war, driving demand for clay drainage pipe, and the factory was operating at capacity. The discipline, focus, and maturity that John had acquired during the war led to frequent promotions. John soon found himself working as the afternoon kiln fireman under the watchful tutelage of the kiln supervisor, David Smith. The eastern region had plentiful clay deposits, and the clay used by the pipe factory was of a variety particularly well suited to the manufacture of drainage pipes, being able to withstand kiln firing at higher temperatures. David Smith was a scientist at heart, and he found John Owen to be a quick study. David spent time showing John how the clay behaved when mixed with other clays in various blends and fired at different temperatures and for different lengths of time. David pointed out that the longer the firing time and the higher the firing temperature, the less porous the resulting pipe would be. David also commented that the eastern clays were adaptable to firing for shorter cycle times and lower temperatures, resulting in a more porous pipe, but one that was equally strong. John enjoyed his impromptu ceramics lessons and had many ideas for how the clay pipe forming process could be streamlined. But he found the job frustrating because the head of manufacturing had no interest in listening to his and David Smith's ideas. In late January 1948, the owner of a small commercial greenhouse down the road visited the clay pipe factory. A local pottery had long supplied his greenhouse with terracotta pots, but the potter had just died with no heirs and the pottery was being shuttered. Could the clay pipe factory also manufacture greenhouse pots? The owner of the clay pipe factory was sympathetic, but the kilns were full and there was no room for additional product to be fired. John, overhearing the conversation, mentioned the opportunity to David Smith. David's response surprised John. He said that the pottery had the best clay pit in the region, and if its presses and kilns were modernized and expanded, it could be a leading clay pot manufacturer. 
David urged John to talk with the potter's widow who might be willing to sell the pottery. John went home after his shift with his head swirling with ideas. Should he consider going into business? Could he support his mother and siblings? Might David Smith be willing to come and work with him? Would his fiancée, Leah, be willing to have a smaller wedding so that they could get the pottery up and running? Owen family, October 31st, 1968. John and Leah Owen threw a big party in the old pottery to celebrate the 20th anniversary of Owen Products Limited. The old mixers and presses, outdated now, provided a rustic backdrop in contrast to the white linen-dressed tabletops decorated with clay pots of all shapes and sizes filled with blooming flowers and trailing ivy. Everyone, suppliers, customers, bankers, friends, and neighbors, had come to celebrate Owen Products' hard-earned success. In his speech to his guests, John made a few jokes about the rough years, but spent most of his time saluting his partner and closest friend, David Smith, who had left the comfortable safety of the clay pipe plant to join John in the new venture back in 1948, and the contributions of his younger brother, Fred, who had joined Owen Products in 1955 after finishing his accountancy training. John didn't say anything about the kiln explosion in 1959 that had destroyed the first manufacturing building and nearly leveled the small warehouse next door. Nor did he mention the rough patch in the early 60s when his former employer, the Clay Pipe Factory, decided to branch out into clay greenhouse pots after plastic drainage pipe became the industry standard. Through it all, Owen Products had survived. One by one, the guests stood to toast John Owen and his company. Standing to the side and listening to his father's speech and the guests' toasts, Charlie Owen thought about all his father had accomplished. Owen Products was considered one of the best places to work in town because John paid a fair wage and he liked to help hardworking employees take on new challenges and advance their careers. The pots that Owen Products made were simple in the larger scheme of things, but more complex than they appeared. John Owen had always invested in the best grinding, forming, and firing technology Owen Products could buy, always plowing profits back into the business. Owen Products stood by its greenhouse customers, committed to shipping on time, and sometimes accepting late payment, especially during the late winter when greenhouses were building inventory for the springtime rush. Charlie knew that his mother, Leah, had also been an important factor in Owen Products' success. It had been she who had persuaded the potter's widow to sell John the pottery in the first place in exchange for John's small savings, a promissory note, and... To John's dismay, the proceeds from selling her grandmother's diamond ring. She took an interest in the employees. She knew everyone's name, and when she visited the plant, asked about their families. Charlie, their only child, knew that John and Leah had wanted a big family. In many ways, the company had become the second child for both of them, carefully nurtured and brought into adulthood. Charlie also thought about the future of Owen Products. Charlie, like his father, had enjoyed a decade working alongside David Smith, learning about the properties of the flexible eastern clays when fired at different temperatures and firing curves. He had recently returned from a year-long graduate program at Western University. 
The western part of the country was in the eighth year of drought, and water rationing requirements were challenging farmers and greenhouses. Charlie had met with greenhouse owners during his time there and asked David whether Owen Products' eastern clays might be mixed with western riverbed clays to produce a lightweight pot porous enough to soak up water and release it slowly while still remaining strong. He and David had shipped in samples of the riverbed clays and been experimenting with various blends. Charlie was cautiously optimistic that they had found the right blend. He planned to ship samples of the pots to one of his greenhouse operator friends out west next week. Charlie was glad to see that his uncle Fred, the controller for Owen Products, had brought his son Alfred to the party. Fred was John's youngest brother, and he had been with the business almost since its founding. Alfred, who suffered from cerebral palsy and was unable to walk, sat in his new wheelchair, a gift from John and Leah last year. Fred was a widower, and he raised Alfred on his own. John believed that one of Owen Products' responsibilities was to serve as a safety net for family members, and he and Leah took particular care to make sure Alfred had the care he needed. Charlie was startled out of his musings by an elbow to the ribs. His fiancée, Allison, brought him back to reality, as she always did. Time to dance with me, Charlie boy. Charlie had met Allie at Western University, where she was studying corporate law. Allie was a wild bohemian on the surface, but a scholar at heart, so different from the Eastern girls Charlie had dated before. Charlie was smitten. On top of everything else, Allie understood the complex water use laws being adopted by Western legislators in response to the long drought, and it helped Charlie understand the opportunities that the Western region offered to a manufacturer that could make pots that were light and porous, but strong. Her family was in the retail business, and Allie told Charlie that small family-owned greenhouses were being bought up by consolidators across the West. Small customers were disappearing in the West. Could Owen Products increase supply and lower costs enough to meet the demands of a multinational chain of growers? Owen Family, March 12, 1986. The year 1986 brought the best of times and the worst of times for Charlie Owen. He and Allie, who had married in 1970 and welcomed four children over the following decade, watched proudly as their oldest son, Michael, helped his team win the local football championship. Owen Products opened a new manufacturing facility in the West, focused on serving Western grower chains. Leah Owen, who had been the spirit of Owen Products for nearly 40 years, now battled Parkinson's disease. And David Smith, a smoker for many years, was diagnosed with advanced lung cancer. Charlie's father, John Owen, was worried about his wife and closest friend and focused on them more and more, leaving operations to Charlie. It was exhilarating and terrifying in equal measure. Charlie found himself traveling constantly between East and West, struggling to manage payroll and debt payments, negotiating with new clients, tweaking clay body mixes and firing curves in David Smith's absence. Allie had taken an indefinite leave of absence from her job at a prominent eastern law firm when Michael was born. She had not returned. Though she missed the law, she felt she could contribute more to the family staying home. 
With Charlie traveling constantly, she had her hands full. Owen Family, December 24th, 1992. Charlie hurried through the Owen Products East plant. He had yet to finish his holiday shopping. He hoped that Allie had, as usual, bought some extra gifts and picked something nice out for herself besides. He was bone-tired and looking forward to some quiet time with his family. Not that there were all that many quiet times with four children, especially with Michael and Martha home from college. Not having grown up with siblings, Charlie was sometimes at a loss when his daughters squabbled about boyfriends or his youngest, Christopher, shut himself away for hours. At least Mike seemed familiar. He was a reasonably good student, athletic, well-liked, and enjoyed all the same things Charlie had liked at his age. Charlie was looking forward to seeing his uncle, Fred, at the family dinner. Now that both his parents were gone, Charlie had grown closer to his uncle. Fred was now chief financial officer for Owen Products and always listened willingly when Charlie brought a worry or a quandary about the financial side of the business. Charlie knew that Owen Products needed to upgrade its accounting systems. He told Allie he was unwilling to disturb his uncle's routines, but really, he had wanted to buy some time before taking on yet another big expense. He felt the same way about dividends. Before John died last year, he had counseled Charlie that when he inherited John's 75% and became majority shareholder, Charlie should consider implementing a dividend policy that would ease Fred's impending retirement and provide for Alfred's care. Charlie saw the wisdom in his father's advice, but so far had done nothing. There just wasn't enough cash to meet all the demands, it seemed. Besides, Fred was making a decent salary, so perhaps dividends could wait. The Western plant had proven out his father's old adage, takes longer, costs more, and Charlie was still struggling to perfect technical specifications, product design, and pricing for the Western market. Allie had been correct in her predictions that the small greenhouses would be consolidated, but Charlie hadn't been prepared for just how difficult and demanding the major growers would be. Furthermore, the West was enjoying the wettest decade on record, and the major growers were turning their attention to lighter, more decorative pots now that porosity and water retention were less critical. Owen Products was making money, but not much. Dividends would need to wait. Chapter 2. Achieving Engaged Ownership Engaged ownership is a group effort. It takes collaboration on the part of the owners and communication among those playing the key roles in the business, owners, board, management, and family. Engagement can't happen on paper. It requires face-to-face discussions, dialogue, and debate. This is because core capital is finite. There is simply not enough core capital to accomplish every goal that every participant envisions. So, it's understandable that those in each role have strongly held, but conflicting perspectives and priorities about how it should be deployed. Owners, as the ultimate owners of the core capital, need to come to consensus and articulate their shared purpose and vision for the deployment of their core capital. In turn, family board and management need opportunities to understand the owner's vision and to offer comments and questions and raise their own perspectives on matters of concern. And if there isn't some degree of disagreement, dialogue, and debate, 
Something is probably missing in the process. Owners must organize and lead the work to achieve engagement. This is not a process that the board or management can orchestrate. Once the owners decide to do the work to accomplish engagement, they will need to devote time and attention to it on a regular basis. Acting together as owners takes time, effort, and practice. As with taking on any new discipline, the important thing is to begin. Owners will find engagement begins to improve almost immediately and will continue to build so long as the owners attend to the process. It isn't necessary to engage a facilitator to guide the owners through the work of engagement, but having a facilitator in the room can make the process flow more smoothly. For a small group or for a controlling owner who plays all the major roles in the business, the facilitator can serve as a springboard for discussion, goad, critical thinker, and or Socratic questioner. For a large group, the facilitator can manage the process to ensure everyone has an opportunity to speak and be heard and to minimize the risk that debate will spiral into anger and frustration. The facilitator can also keep track of the group's responses in areas of agreement and disagreement and help to set agendas to deal with ongoing issues. When? Owners can begin the work of engagement anytime. Typically, owners will want to undertake the work of developing engagement when circumstances have changed and the natural governance system, the way we do things around here, no longer keeps the business in a comfortable equilibrium. The owners may find themselves frustrated by a lack of common purpose with those who run the company. They may feel that they have no way to provide input and sense that they are stuck. Sometimes the lack of alignment is between owners and management. Sometimes it is among the owners themselves. When there is a major disagreement among owners about the future course of the business, working to increase engagement can help the owners achieve a better understanding of their individual and collective visions for the future and choose a course of action. It is particularly important for owners to come together in connection with a significant ownership transition. For example, adult children who inherit shares will need to begin to learn their new role as owners, enumerating their core capital, defining their shared purpose and vision, and developing relationships with others who hold key roles in the business, particularly if one or more of them also serve as directors or in management roles. Likewise, individuals who become trustees of trusts that own significant shares of the business will want to define their roles vis-a-vis the business, as owner, and vis-a-vis the grantor and the beneficiaries, as trustee. And owners considering bringing in an outside investor will want to define their shared purpose and vision well before the transaction takes place, so that they can determine whether the benefits of the transaction, such as generating liquidity for the group or enabling an unhappy owner to exit, outweigh the potential drawbacks, such as changing policies around family employment or corporate charitable giving to meet the demands of the more financially oriented outside owner. Core capital. To take on the responsibility of engaged ownership, owners first need to consider what is the core capital of our business and our family? What is at stake? 
For purposes of this book, we'll think about three forms of core capital. Financial capital, which is money and equivalents, the income and distributions from the business, the financial value of physical assets such as equipment, raw materials, inventories, and real estate. Human capital, the owner's individual and family relationships, the family's talents, drive, perseverance, grit, and determination, their strongly held values in their entrepreneurial zeal, the formal and informal education they've received, and the experience and knowledge base they hold individually and as a group, the family's relationships and connections, its influence, its values, the reservoir of goodwill and their good name within the family, the business, and the wider community. Enterprise capital, innovations in research, design, product, service, process, combinations of capital unique to the family and its business that generate a return greater than what the separate elements would generate individually, the societal value of the product or the service that the business provides. No two families define their core capital the same way. Enumerating core capital is an exercise of thinking about all that has been invested in the business and the family over time, all the assets in all forms that make up their legacy and their future opportunity set. Shared purpose. The second step to engaged ownership is articulating a common shared purpose. The shared purpose is the answer to the question, why do we want to be involved in this business and the core capital it represents together as owners, if at all? Without a shared purpose, there will not be enough glue to bond the owners to each other and to their collective investment. In the absence of a good enough shared purpose, there will be an increased risk of acrimony as owners seek different returns from the same business. This risk heightens the importance of thinking broadly about ownership of the core capital rather than just the financial capital of the business. Each owner needs to understand how the others value the business and what is important to them. With a family business, there is almost always more at stake than money. Ultimately, the shared purpose reflects a voluntary emotional commitment on the part of each owner to spend time with their fellow owners making important decisions that will affect their own and other people's lives and the deployment of the core capital. The shared purpose of any ownership group will be unique and even idiosyncratic. Business success is generally part of the mix, but rarely do purely financial purposes, say to generate above-average profits, top the list. Rather, the shared purpose draws together the core reasons this group remains in this specific business venture together. Sometimes, owners conclude that they simply do not have a good enough shared purpose to want to stay together as owners. Each owner may be able to articulate a purpose, but they find there is no consensus among them. Those who focus on business continuity as the measure of family business success might deem this outcome to be failure. Why? If by recognizing their lack of shared purpose, the group can make reasoned, dispassionate, and sensible decisions about how to move forward, whether to split up the business so parts can run separately, sell it all, or redeem out one or more of the owners in a way that preserves as much of the core capital as possible, 
and allocates capital among the owners in a way they agree upon, then such an outcome looks much more like success. Vision. The vision is what the owners would describe as their true north, a description of the goals they are trying to achieve and the criteria they will use to measure their version of success. This definition of vision points out why it is so important for the owners to do the work of articulating their vision. They must be able to explain to the board and management what is often a very unique and distinctive set of goals. If the owners don't do this work, the board might quite reasonably assume that the owners measure performance purely by financial metrics. Directors might substitute their own vision or the vision of a public company in the same industry. For example, some board members might assume that owners would want fast growth or a perfectly level dividend or to be listed in the Forbes 100, when in fact the owners don't value those outcomes. Only if the owners do the work of articulating the vision will the board know what to work with management to aim for. For some groups of owners, the vision may be couched primarily in financial terms and will put the financial capital foremost. For others, the vision will include goals that relate to non-financial forms of core capital. While most owners' vision typically will include some basic financial performance measures, it also will include some non-financial standards. For the owners, these non-financial or personal financial goals are just as important as the financial goals. Some may have their basis in the family's history, such as an aversion to debt. Others may reflect the owner's desire to right-size the business and their involvement in it. Still others may reflect the family's view of its role in the community, however the family may define community. The vision may seem illogical to non-family members who focus primarily on profit, and the vision may indeed reduce profitability and or free cash flow from what it would be if the goals were not pursued. But achieving the vision is critical to the owners. When owners have strong, non-financial shared purpose and vision, they must be able to articulate it and have a role in setting high-level business goals if they are to realize their vision. Owen Family, October 19, 1996. The year 1996 had been a momentous one for Owen Products Limited. Michael, now 26, took over sales for Owen Products East, giving Charlie more time to focus on the Western business. Michael was steady and focused, Charlie felt. He didn't have his grandfather's scientific bent or his mother's energy and insight, but he had a real talent for developing strong and lasting relationships with Owen Products greenhouse customers. Michael's sister, Martha, had headed west for university and showed no signs of ever wanting to return. She had been an indifferent student, but an enthusiastic leader of her sorority's community service program, so Charlie recruited her to manage the community service program he had instituted company-wide to help employee families facing unexpected medical emergencies. Martha had inherited her grandmother Leah's talent for meeting and befriending everyone in the plant, Charlie suspected that her interest in Ryan Jones, a manufacturing supervisor fresh out of university, might, in fact, go a bit beyond friendship. Charlie worried about what might happen if one of his children were to marry an employee, 
but he pushed that issue to the back of his mind, spending nearly all his time dealing with the big Western buyers. Besides, Ryan showed real talent, and perhaps a relationship with Martha might help keep him at Owen Products. Amanda and Christopher were in graduate school, having demonstrated academic aptitude that surprised Charlie. He guessed that they would not follow their older siblings into the company, but would make their own way. Sometimes Charlie wondered whether Amanda's desire to study law was an echo of her mother's interest that had been stymied when motherhood and Charlie's preoccupation with the business had cut short Allie's own legal career. Whether inherited or not, Amanda's aptitude for the law was real. She helped Charlie understand the legal implications of new environmental and product safety regulations applicable to their greenhouse clients, but also frustrated him when she focused only on the legal side of an issue. Christopher, meanwhile, still puzzled Charlie. A bit of a loner, Christopher had proven himself to be eerily smart and focused his studies on advanced theoretical mathematics. Christopher showed little interest in the day-to-day happenings at the business and looked positively bored whenever dinner discussion turned to the company during his visits home. Owen family, March 13, 2008. It was a beautiful early spring day, one of those days when gardeners, tired of the long, dark winter, survey their gardens and porches and head to the greenhouse, Charlie mused. He wished he, too, were gardening, or at least out for a run. Instead, he stood with Allie and his children on the church doorway, shaking hands and embracing employees and friends. Charlie felt very alone, even with Allie and his children and their spouses by his side. His uncle Fred, the retired chief financial officer at Owen Products, had died suddenly of a heart attack, and now no one was left of John Owen's generation. Charlie would miss Fred's dry sense of humor, his unending patience, and his excellent grasp of Owen Products' financials. Charlie had hired another CFO, but felt he had never really been able to fill the hole Fred had left when he retired 12 years before. Fred's son, Alfred, wasn't at the church. The cold virus that was plaguing the East had hit Alfred hard. Wheelchair-bound and with limited mobility due to cerebral palsy, Alfred struggled with respiratory problems, and now he had a serious case of bronchitis that was not responding well to antibiotics. Charlie felt a heavy weight. Fred had named him trustee of a trust that held Fred's 25% interest in Owen products for the benefit of Alfred, and Alfred's care was now squarely Charlie's responsibility. Chapter 3. Engaged Ownership Hallmarks and Impediments What are the hallmarks of an engaged owner? Interest. An engaged owner is interested in the work of the business and the investment of the core capital represented by his ownership. He is willing to devote the time to attend scheduled meetings and participate in discussions around business issues. He reads materials provided by the board and management and also follows news about the industry, business in general, and family business in particular. He is mindful of all the forms of core capital and how they are deployed in the business. Understanding An engaged owner understands the owner's role in relationships and the appropriate scope of her involvement. 
she takes care to raise issues and participate in discussions in the proper forums and to postpone discussions that might pop up elsewhere, such as over a holiday dinner with family. Ability. An engaged donor works to maintain her knowledge of general business, investments, and strategy so that she can evaluate options when decisions must be made. She knows what she doesn't know. She seeks input and advice from others as necessary. She has the time to devote to exercising ownership responsibilities. An engaged donor is able to listen actively to others and consider alternative viewpoints. She is able and willing to express her own ideas and ask tough and unpopular questions, but with tact and respect. She has the discipline and maturity to work with others toward a common vision, even though there may be no immediate personal benefit to doing so. Long-sightedness and broad-sightedness. An engaged donor thinks about choices over the long term and considers the broad implications of a decision. He thinks about choices several steps ahead and about non-financial as well as financial consequences of a given decision. An engaged donor thinks about a future that is years and often generations ahead. Is this definition of engaged ownership achievable? Yes, it is. The key to becoming engaged owners is finding and voicing a shared purpose and a common vision for the future of the business and the core capital. Owners find that the drive to become and remain engaged comes when they articulate a common shared purpose and recognize that they alone are ultimately responsible for the core capital deployed in the business and that their work and decision-making can meaningfully increase the odds that the core capital will be sustained over time. In practice, engaged donors focus on three questions. One, what is our core capital? Two, what is our shared purpose? Why do we choose to be owners of this business and our core capital together? Three, what is our vision? What exactly is our core capital and what is the most productive way to deploy it going forward? How do we organize ourselves, the business, and the deployment of our core capital to achieve our shared purpose and our vision? Several aspects of this list of questions are worth mentioning up front. First, the owners own a business, but the questions have to do with the core capital. That is because the core capital includes the business, but is broader than the business alone. A significant part of the core capital could continue to exist even if the business failed or the owners opted to expand, sell, or shutter it, or to create an entirely new and different business. For that reason, focusing on business-level decisions alone, such as what is the future of this business, is defining the question too narrowly. Second, the questions hinge on the decision of a group to be engaged owners together and to make decisions based on a common shared purpose. Engaged ownership is a choice that must be affirmatively made by each individual owner. An owner cannot be an engaged owner against her will or consider himself engaged, but just come along for the ride. Third, this discussion of engaged ownership also presumes that there is more than one owner and that most or all of the owners are related to each other. That is not because the issues discussed here aren't relevant to an individual controlling owner or to a group of unrelated owners of a private business. 
Dealing with ownership decisions, separate from family decisions and business decisions, can be a challenge even when just one person owns and controls a business. Because whereas management focuses on the business, ownership decision-making requires a broader focus on core capital. This discussion of engaged ownership focuses primarily on groups of owners because the dynamics of the family group make engagement that much more difficult for the owners to achieve. Within the group will be individuals with differing experience, perspective, skills, and personalities. They may be of different ages and from different branches or generations of the family. The group may include individuals who have roles beyond ownership, who serve as directors and or members of the management team, for example. There may be one or more trustees if all are part of the ownership is held in trust. One owner or a block may hold a controlling interest while others hold minority interests. The shares may be capitalized as voting and non-voting, with the result that some owners may have different types and degrees of control over business decision-making. All of these differences can thwart individual efforts to develop consensus and become engaged owners. Where a diverse group owns a business, it can seem easier, and perhaps safer, to delegate ownership decision-making to one or two individuals than to undertake the work of becoming engaged owners. Because of the challenges of overcoming such diversity, many advisors have argued that families should avoid group ownership. They recommend concentrating ownership and control in the hands of those who run the business. Certainly, many successful multi-generational family businesses have followed this strategy, sometimes referred to as pruning the tree. But those families that prefer to remain in business together can take heart. For those willing to put in the effort, engaged ownership offers the potential for a successful and sustainable path forward. And furthermore, engaged ownership by a group harnesses more of the human capital of the family in service of the business and the core capital. Non-managing owners bring valuable outside experience, employment in other industries, board service, life knowledge, academic training, to their work as owners, which can deepen and broaden the vision for the future of the business and the core capital. Impediments to engaged ownership. One might reasonably ask at this point, well, why aren't all family owners engaged? There are any number of reasons why owners may not become involved in the decision-making around the future of the business. Surprisingly few, though, have anything to do with the owners themselves. Publicly held corporations have an outsized influence on the legal and organizational structures used by privately held corporations. As a result, there is a bias towards management-centric public company governance based on the fundamental assumption that shareholders seek financial returns. Conventional wisdom counsels that concentrating power in management is the only way to avoid infighting among owners with different objectives. Controlling owners may define succession planning narrowly as a search for a successor controlling owner. As a result, families that have the aptitude for and interest in engaged ownership may not consider it as an option or plan and prepare themselves for engagement. Business-centric thinking around succession planning, in other words, defining the problem as finding a suitable successor CEO, leads to plans that focus on continuing the business rather than sustaining the core capital. 
Societal policies such as primogeniture have reinforced the bias toward thinking of succession planning primarily as a task of naming a successor CEO and preserving the business. In such an environment, thinking broadly about core capital and weighing options that might redeploy capital away from the business to new ventures may seem heretical. Inherited ownership is often denigrated, trust fund baby, born with a silver spoon. Inheritors who don't work in the business may be told, you didn't earn this, or you were given this, so don't complain, and so are discouraged from engagement. In such a business system, financial capital invested in the business may be seen as belonging to the business, not to the owners. Owners who take over from a strong and successful founder may fear that they will be unable to match the founder's success. For these inheritors, ownership may seem more like a yoke than an opportunity. The Rise of the Public Company Model of Governance The rise of the public company model of corporate governance has had an outsized and sometimes pernicious effect on decision-making in family businesses. In the earliest business transactions, there were no corporations or partnerships. People made products or provided services to each other in exchange for other products or services in a simple two-way barter economy. As people came together and local economies grew, currencies came about, which facilitated trade among multiple people simultaneously, simplifying transactions and creating a market for goods and services. As goods and services became more varied and sophisticated, and as economies of scale grew, businesses became more capital-intensive. Along with the need for capital came investors, a separate class of market participants who provided capital to producers in exchange for a financial return. Investors were understandably wary of investing in businesses without some ability to oversee the producers and make sure that capital would be put to the use intended and not wasted or stolen. And so economies developed rules and systems, eventually coded into law, that defined the relationships between the parties. But the need of the investors to oversee directly those who use their capital still limited the potential size of the business. Arguably, the most game-changing invention in the history of business was the creation of the corporation. The corporate forum offered limited liability to investors along with a board of directors with the legal obligation to oversee the business on their behalf. Whereas an investor in a joint venture or a general partnership had unlimited liability and might stand to lose more money than he or she put in if things went very wrong, an investor in a corporation risked only his or her investment. Suddenly, corporate shareholders could enjoy an asymmetric risk-return profile. If the business was successful, they could multiply their investment many times over. If it failed miserably, they could lose no more than their initial investment. The creation of what would be the modern-day corporation and the capping of investment risk enabled producers to recruit investors and their financial capital on an entirely new scale. Under the new structure, investors enjoyed sufficient protections that they were willing to make more significant investments and accept less direct oversight. Public companies grew rapidly in many industries, with large groups of unrelated investors subscribing to new stock offerings 
in a wide range of businesses and with public stock exchanges permitting investors to buy, sell, and trade shares at will. Over time, the corporation became the most common form of business entity. Variations abounded, limited partnerships, limited liability companies, but all were built on the concept of treating investors separately from producers and protecting their financial investments by limiting their financial risk. As a result, the public corporation governance is built on the notion that investors have purely a financial interest and that they need to be protected from management who might otherwise misuse the capital provided by the investors. Large and ever-expanding bodies of corporate law have spelled out the fiduciary duty of directors, whose job it is to oversee the business and management, in an ongoing attempt to balance the need to provide investors with a degree of protection while leaving management with sufficient leeway to make business decisions that will generate a profit. Public company governance seeks to give unrelated investors reasonable transparency regarding the financial performance of the business, along with a robust market so that investors can buy and sell shares at will. With a long and successful track record of promoting economic growth and a robust and long-established body of legal rules and precedent, the corporation has become the leading structure for business entities in the United States as well as a prominent model for corporate entities globally. Many family businesses aspire to operate like a public company and adopt governance practices, such as creating boards of independent directors, that mirror those of public corporations. The problem is, the public corporation model, designed to bring together financial investors with managers in need of capital, with the help of a market that would provide an exit for unhappy investors, doesn't really fit owners who have received their shares through inheritance or estate planning transactions. These family owners haven't purchased their shares. They've inherited them. Most family businesses are privately held, and there is no market for trading in the shares. Furthermore, to the family that owns it, a family business is much more than an investment. It is the embodiment of an ancestor's dream, the place where the owners worked during the summers, the enterprise where their ancestors developed new products or technologies that radically changed markets, the source of the contributions the owners have made to civic and charitable organizations, the employer of citizens in their town. A family-owned business is a venture built from the vision hard work, and gumption of a family over generations. Engaged owners redefine the role of the owner to reflect their broad interest in core capital and the reality that for them, ownership is far more than a financial interest. This concludes Part 1. Stay tuned for Part 2, Getting Organized.